just to reiterate uh, what Mary said, uh, the Crisis Pregnancy Center is a very important ministry to us. The one closest to the church uh, has received our support. The Our three classes, this, you're the third of our three, have decided some years ago to fill up uh, these cute little baby bottles with spare change or even paper money if you feel so inclined. And then it's accounted by our church here. And then we bring it over to the Crisis Pregnancy Center who accounts for it. And we compare to make sure everything's accounted for. And last year, um, our three classes were able to provide uh, over $9,000, which is just amazing. And it was so well used and so greatly appreciated by the staff over there. So we're doing it again, as Mary said. We hand these out on Mother's Day. We collect them Father's Day, which is next week. If you want to participate but have not yet had a chance, please help yourself. We have baby bottles here and many more in the back, and then you can bring them next week, and we will get them to the right source. Yes, Bob? So Bob is saying our three classes, Bob has participated in uh, golfing, and we commit to a certain amount of money per hole, and it too goes to the Crisis Pregnancy Center. I didn't know this, but Bob was just saying our three classes were able to give about $25,000 that way. So that is absolutely, it's overwhelming, remarkable. Wow, thank you for that good information. And then, as Mary said, Vacation Bible School starting tomorrow. Big effort, worth it. Kids come to know the Lord. Changes their entire life. I hope you take advantage of what Mary said and consider yourself to be a decision counselor. On Wednesday and Thursday night, the kids are given a formal invitation. But then they meet with an adult just to make sure they understand their decision. We get together and designated rooms you would sit across from a young child don't be nervous we do a little training beforehand Wednesday night at 5 30 in the worship center brother Chuck does a little training we give you the materials necessary and in the counseling room if you run into a situation you're uncertain of you just slip your hand up and there will be people there to help you people in the children's ministry will be there John Mark who heads up the counseling decision-making counseling activity, et cetera, et cetera. I hope you take advantage of it. You'll be blessed and a blessing because we need you. This is Wednesday and Thursday night. You do not need to stay for the full program. The counseling times are at a designated time, and then you can go your way if you so choose, or you can stay to observe the rest of the program. We'll have hundreds and hundreds of kids here, so I hope you get involved. Folks, let me ask you a question that I hope will prime the pump for our text today. It's this question. Is a person saved by faith alone or by faith plus works? That's the question. Would anyone like to weigh in on that before we see what James had to say? Are you saved by faith alone or by faith plus works? Any thoughts on that one? Anyone? Oh, look, you're yelling like this. Nobody wants to. Yes, brother. By the way, I love your beard. Very rabbinical looking. My heavens. Oh, really? Oh. 
Very interesting. So our brother is saying, in case you didn't hear, in a maybe combat or other situation, if someone is dying and that person has had faith in Christ and they die, it's only their faith that assures their salvation. There are no works to back it up. That's a very excellent point. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Daniel? Wow, the Bible. That kind of settles it, huh? Yeah, there's always someone who quotes the Bible. And you did well in this case. Thank you so much. Um, yes, Linda. Now, what Linda said bears repeating. She said, you are saved by faith, but your works confirm it, back it up. Is that true? And Linda said, that's what James says. Yes, David? <laughs> ah, so David is attributing this to his wife in case it's the wrong answer. That's how Dave does it. It's his style. But uh, in this case, it is the correct answer. So we all must credit Patsy with it. It's not Dave's. That's right. Patsy was passing on to David because he needs these things passed on. That no works don't save, but do, the doing of good works will um, beget us rewards in the end. The Bible speaks of some as being rewards in the form of crowns, which then we could lay at the Lord's feet. And that is a great point of view. Well, I would like for us to take a gander at what James has to say about this very question. Linda is saying her answer is James's. Let's see if Linda is right. We are in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, which is where Brother Chuck uh, left off last week. He took us to this point, and as is our style in the class, where one guy stops, the other guy continues. So we're in James chapter 2, verse 14. Look what it says. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? So James seems to be implying, Linda, in this text, that faith alone is not enough. He seems to be implying that a person needs faith plus works in order to be truly saved. Is that what he's saying? No, <laughs> that is not what he's saying. He's saying that true salvation involves faith on the inside and works, which demonstrate that faith on the outside. Please notice a key word in this verse. I'll read it to you again. If a man says he has faith, but he has no works, can, here's the key word, can that faith save him? The word that is a definite article, meaning it defines what comes after. Faith saves, but what kind of faith? James is saying the kind of faith that has no evidence in a changed life is not the faith. That faith does not save because that is not saving Faith, And so James is saying faith without the evidence of change, without the evidence of works, that kind of faith doesn't save because it's not genuine faith at all. 
I've spoken to people, I'm sure you have too, have said things like, yes, I know Jesus. I know Jesus is the Son of God. I know he's died on the cross. Why, I am a Christian. And yet you don't see any lifestyle that corresponds with it. I think that's the kind of so-called professed faith that James would question as being authentic, saving faith. And so James seems to be saying being a Christian is more than just a casual acknowledgement of the facts about Christ. It involves a kind of trust and yieldedness leading to a changed life. For instance, you're drowning. Someone throws to you a life preserver. You've seen it before. You're familiar with it. You know about it. You recognize it. In fact, you know what its intended purpose is. It is to preserve life. It is a life preserver. You have all that information, and yet, for whatever reason, you choose not to grab onto it so as to be saved. You see, that is not the saving faith that saves. That's knowledge. It's head knowledge. You're fully aware of this particular object, but you've made no commitment to it. You haven't in any way laid hold of it. James is saying the profession of faith in Christ without evidence that someone has really grabbed onto Christ as Savior, well, that's not faith that saves at all. There was a, there was a young man. He... Uh, worked for some kind of corporation. They sent him overseas for a special project. It was long-term. He knew he'd be away for quite some time, but he took the job anyway because um, it was an opportunity for him to save up money because he wanted to marry his long-time girlfriend. He wanted to accumulate the funds to do so. And he and his uh, girlfriend would correspond regularly by letter Things were good, but she began to, I don't know, just wonder if he's being faithful to her. You know, they're away for so long, and he's thousands of miles away as he's seeing other women. She expressed that concern in a letter. He wrote back and said, I admit that sometimes I'm tempted, but I fight it because I'm keeping myself for you. Well, she was sort of relieved, but she sent something back to him. She sent a harmonica with a note saying, I'm sending this to you so that you can learn to play it and have something to take your mind off other girls. He didn't know how to play a harmonica. She sends the harmonica. Well, the assignment ends. He comes back. He arrives at the airport. There's his girlfriend. He runs over to her. He wants to give her a big hug and a big kiss. She says, hold on, not so fast. Before any hugging and kissing goes on, let me hear you play that harmonica. (laughs) You know what she was asking for? proof of his love. He stated it. He professed it. Where is the evidence thereof? Play the harmonica. Well, God is essentially looking for the same thing. You professed an awareness of me. You say, you know, the facts of what I've done for you. Show me evidence that you love me. Show me evidence that you have accessed my salvation and that it has taken root in your life. So James is saying professed faith is simply not enough to save nor to satisfy real faith is faith that's backed up by noticeable change in your life. Folks, how could it be any other way? How could transcendent deity, alpha and omega, he who has no beginning nor end, 
He who spoke the very world into existence and the power of his word, how could unbounded, infinite God who exists outside our space-time dimension, how could he inhabit a person and it not show? It doesn't make sense. There ought to be evidence of the presence of God in one's life if one has, in fact, invited God in the person of Jesus Christ to come into one's life. Life. This is not to say that salvation immediately produces sinless perfection. No, no, no. But salvation ought to produce a new direction almost immediately. New direction. Not sinless perfection, but a new direction. Let me illustrate. I've shared this, I think, this kind of thing before, but I think it bears repeating. I was a brand new Christian in the military. We were playing basketball in... Um, it was a big, huge building. It was a bomber factory in World War II or something like that. And the government converted it into a gym for military folks. There was like six basketball courts in there, and we would play. And you could play all through the night. They had lights and all this stuff. So in the course of playing, I used the Lord's name in vain. Well, I had been doing that all along. It wasn't, wasn't like a new thing. But what was new is that it bothered me now. It never bothered me before. Now it bothered me. It was just something about it. I wasn't familiar so much with the commandment that prohibits using the Lord's name in vain. I surely had not yet attended any church, didn't get any good training or teaching. What was it? How about the presence of a holy God in my life who was convicting me of sin? I never had that evidence of regeneration. There were other things as well. I, I, I wanted to stop drinking when I became a believer. I, I had not yet attended a church, surely not a Baptist church, where you would hear that on day one. <laughs> hey, how you doing? No drinking. Okay. And by the way, no dancing either. We don't want any people dancing when they're drinking because you, you, you fall on people. But anyway, I didn't get any of that stuff. It was... It sounded like I had immediate victory and I was able to stop drinking. No, no, no. But I was able to start the process of stopping the drinking. And uh, by God's grace, I've had victory. I haven't had anything to drink in over 40 years and I'm not planning on doing so. But, but, But I'm not trying to brag about myself. On the contrary, I'm just saying, where did that come from? Even the interest to stop drinking, let alone the power to do so, you see those evidence evidence of salvation. You know what I did? I went to a church. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm a Jewish guy. I don't know if I've told you this in the last 10 seconds. But anyway, what am I doing going to a church? We don't do church. Well, I went to a church. It was a small country church outside the military installation. In fact, I know the name of it. Listen to this. Pleasant View Berean Fundamentalist Church. Holy moly. That was the church. So I went there. And I didn't just go on Sunday morning. Are you kidding me? I went Sunday evening. They had a Sunday evening service. And I went to their Wednesday midweek service. Oh, by the way, someone told me to tell you, thank you for a reminder, we will have no midweek service here this week because we have vacation Bible school. That's tonight. We want to help the the kiddos. Okay, thanks for your reminder. So anyway, I would go Wednesday night as well. By the way, one Sunday. And also to Bible, they didn't call it iConnect class. They called it, how archaic, they called it Sunday school. But anyway, I went, I, like the whole deal. What motivated me to do that? Well, one Sunday I'm in church and there's this couple. I didn't know them. They were visitors and the pastor introduced them as 
missionaries. What's a missionary? There they, there they were. They stood up and they shared. And the pastor said, uh, this is a couple doing God's work elsewhere in Australia, he said. God's work in Australia. God's doing a work in Australia? Well, what's God doing in Australia? I mean, this is all new stuff to me. Well, they got up to share their ministry. It was, it was with the aboriginal peoples there in Australia. I was kind of amazed. They're Americans. They left their familiar comfort zone here to go to work with aboriginal peoples in Australia. Why would someone do something like that? And they just began to share how God was using them and why they went there. And towards the end of their message, they said, if you'd like, you can sign up and receive our prayer letter. Prayer letter. Wow. You mean I could stay right where I was here in the States, but I could still be part of their team by praying for them? You're kidding me. I signed up for the prayer letter. And then uh, it was mentioned if anyone would like to help them financially to stay in the field, they called it, you could do so. Well, I'm new to this Christian life. I I signed up. I wanted to make a financial commitment. I thought, you're kidding me. I can't go where they went. I can't do what they are doing. But I could be part of it just by praying and giving. Wow. So that's what I did. And then I got a letter from them. The stamp. It was a stamp from Australia. Are you kidding me? I got this letter and I read it. Dear Stuart, what? That's my name. They knew me. Thank you so much for being part of our team. I'm part of the team. I was so thrilled. Could you pray for the following? They had this and that. You're kidding me. I'm part of the team. Of course I'm going to pray. And thank you for your support and all this. Now you please tell me what motivated me to do all that. Did I tell you I'm Jewish? (laughs) Now why would I be doing something like that? You don't give away your money. You invest it. Here I am doing very different things. No one's twisting my arms. It wasn't under compulsion at all. Where did that all come from? How about the very presence of God in my life? It was changing me. Now, folks, I'm not bragging about any of that. I just want to tell you this. I've never doubted my salvation. But I'll tell you why. I have evidence of it. Do you? Listen to me. It doesn't have to be the same kind. There ought to be some. If you have evidence of the very presence of God in your life, having changed the direction of your life, you're not where you want to be, neither am I, but you are not where you used to be. If you have that evidence, then when we finish here in two to three hours, uh, uh, you should go in peace. Go in peace. You're with Jesus, and Jesus is in you. How do you know that? You have evidence of it. But what if you don't have evidence? I'd love you to contact me. I'll meet with you privately during the week. You can call the church, ask for Stuart. You can text. You can email. You can send out a homing pigeon. You do what you want to do, whatever means of communication, and I'll meet with you. We can meet here in the lobby and just talk, not argue, not debate. I will not offend you. That's a big issue. Don't you want to know where you stand with Almighty God, with whom we one day have to make do? Well, James is talking about that. He's not saying for one moment that works save. He's saying works are the evidence of salvation. In fact, someone said faith without works is faith without worth. You see, it's not saving faith. Now, Martin Luther, have you heard of him? Did not like this little letter 
written by James. In, his, in the 1522 edition of Martin Luther's translated New Testament, in the preference thereof, in 1522, Martin Luther referred to this very book we are now studying, James, as an epistle of straw. That is not a compliment. He was saying it's as worthless as hay. In fact, it ought to be burnt up like hay. Once, grudgingly, Martin Luther, in another translation, he was a genius. He can do everything, Martin Luther, I tell you. He, he grudgingly included James, put it way in the back. <laughs> uh, why did he call it an epistle of straw? Martin Luther was a very, very devout Catholic priest, monk. He was doing everything he could to establish right standing with God. You cannot fault Martin Luther for lack of sincerity and authenticity. What a burden it was. He would write about it. You can read his writings. I encourage you to do so. He was so tormented uh, because when did he ever have assurance that he was doing enough to be right with God? Good deeds, moral and ethical things, study the law. He was doing his best. And then one day he read Romans, the book of Romans. And he came to, to a verse like Romans 1.16. Martin Luther read it. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to, the, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And Martin Luther was struck by this. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, not his efforts, his good deeds, his strenuous compulsion to live by laws and morals and ethics and religious standards of the church and so on, which driving him crazy. He could never stack up. And then he read, oh, no, it's none of that. It's the gospel, the good news about the work of Christ, not your own work, the work of Christ that saves. And Martin Luther was set free. You know what the evidence of it is? The Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was one of the folks who started it. He posted something called the 95 Theses on the door of a church in Germany. My wife and I have visited there. It's a very beautiful experience. And he wrote a wonderful, he said things like, here I stand. And, and, And this was quite a thing in those days. I don't know if you know this, but you and I theologically are connected to the Protestant Reformation. I don't know if you know this. Yeah, we all are. And so this is Martin Luther set free by what he read in Romans about justification through faith alone by God's grace alone. Well, and then he read James. And James is saying stuff like faith without works is dead. And Martin Luther freaks out. That's why he called it an epistle of straw because he felt what James was saying was in contradiction to what Paul was saying. And Martin Luther, as brilliant and gifted as he was, was wrong. Paul and James were not at odds with one another at all. Paul and James were addressing different problems associated with the issue of salvation. For instance, in the book of Romans, the issue Paul was addressing with regard to salvation is something we can call legalism. The people to whom he wrote, mostly Jews, were seeking essentially to do what Martin Luther 
did at one time, and that is be right with God by the doing of the law. The Jews were trying to live by the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses is really, really good, but they ain't. Therefore, bad people cannot become good by the doing of the good law because bad people don't do the good law. By the way, it's not just the Jews. It's yous. I mean, there's Ten Commandments. We should go around. Let's see how perfectly you have obeyed them. You say, well, I gotcha. I haven't murdered anyone. Okay, let's skip to commandment number 10. Thou shalt not covet. Gotcha. Because to covet is to have a desire for something that is not righteously yours. That's a sin of the heart. You see what I mean? So all the commandments lock us under sin. That's the issue Paul is dealing with. He's saying to the Jews, you cannot be right with God by the doing of laws and ordinances and statutes for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Martin Luther, excuse me, Romans, Paul was dealing with the issue of legalism with respect to salvation. James is not dealing with that issue. He's dealing with the issue of what we could call easy believism. That's a person who simply says, I'm a Christian. Everything's fine. And James wants them to know, no, it's not. If you don't have any evidence in your life of a change, that profession, that kind of faith does not save. That kind of faith is useless. That kind of faith is dead faith. Uh, James is not saying you're saved by works. James is saying you're saved and the evidence thereof are works. So you see, James and Paul are dealing with two different matters with regard to salvation and They're not at odds with one another at all. So that's kind of the situation here in James. But James knows this is tough stuff because human pride and religions always opt not for justification by faith alone, but by by establishing your own righteousness with God by doing your own stuff. So to really enhance his point, he gives an illustration. James does now in verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? A needy fellow Christian comes up to you and has a material need for food, clothing, or shelter. You listen quite attentively and sympathetically, and then you say quite graciously, wow, that is really hard. I will pray for you. James is essentially saying, what good is that? Doggone it. That person needs a place to stay, food in their belly, and some clothing. You didn't do any good. And James is now taking that illustration, to which we could all relate, and he's applying it to something a little more lofty. Verse 17, even so... In other words, he's referring back to that illustration. In light of what you conclude about that illustration, even so, faith, not food, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. See, he's making the same point. Words are cheap. Where's the evidence? Words of care for that person mean nothing. What are you doing to meet the person's need? Words of faith in Jesus Christ mean nothing. Where are the works that show? You're really a follower of Christ. You know, in the ancient world, if you came upon a person who appeared to be dead, you would take a mirror and hold it up right under that person's nose. Why? 
If there was a film that appeared on the mirror, you just found out, whoa, the person only appears to be dead. I still see the breath of life on the mirror. But if you held the mirror under that person's nose, you saw nothing, you would say, that person's dead. James is essentially saying, hold up a mirror to yourself. What reflection do you see in it? Do you see signs of life in that mirror? You who profess to know Christ, do you see evidence of it that's a reflection of you? What do you look like? You ought to look differently than you did before you professed to know Christ. So then James invents someone called someone who has an argument to the contrary, and James invents him so that he can have the opportunity to dispute what that person says. And he even names that person. That person is called someone. Look at it, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith, good. I have works. That's the way it is. James responds to that someone, show me your faith without the works. How in the world can you really persuade someone of your faith in Christ if there's no evidence thereof? He's saying... Show me your faith without the works. It's not possible. I'll show you my faith by my works. He is not saying we're saved by works. He's saying works reveal faith. And that's the only way, actually, to reveal your legitimate faith in Christ. So that's kind of what he's, he's saying there. Now someone says, yeah, but I believe in God. Have you ever shared your faith with someone? And they start off by saying, yeah, I believe in God. Isn't that good enough? Well, let's see what James says. Verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Listen to me. If that's the extent of your faith, I believe in the existence of God, you have nothing more than demonic faith. Even they believe in the existence of God. What did it do for them? Nothing good. They shudder at the thought of God. If that's the extent of your faith, start shuddering because you've got to stand before that God you say you believe in. So James is saying, nope, it's got to be more than that. You acknowledge the existence of God. There was a man named John Payton. He was a Bible translator. He went to a South Seas Islands to make the Bible available in the language of those people. Hard work. He first had to learn their language to translate the Bible into their language. In the course of doing so, he found out they did not have a corresponding word in their language for the word faith. This is what Bible translators have to deal with. They had no word in their language corresponding to faith. He really wrestled over this. One day, a man charges into his house. The missionary knew him. He was one of the islanders. He had been running for quite some time. He wanted to talk to the missionary. He's out of breath. He plops himself down on a big, large, comfortable chair in the missionary's home. And then the man uttered these words. He said, ah, it's good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And John Payton said, ah, that's how I will translate the word faith. Resting your whole weight on the work and merits of Christ, not on your own. That's how he translated it. What's true faith? You rest your whole weight on the salvation work of Jesus Christ. You do not add to it in any way. There's nothing you can do. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You rest your whole weight on the finished work of Christ. You do not work for your salvation. But having laid hold of the finished work of Christ, there ought to be evidence in the form of works 
issuing from your own new regenerated self. Do you see evidence of Christ in your life? As someone has said, if you were to be put on trial, convicted of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If the answer is yes, then you can go in peace. (laughs) You are right with Christ now and forevermore. You have evidence of your salvation. If the answer is, I don't see the evidence, well, be honest with you. Be honest with me, would you? Let's get together. Let's talk. This is a very, very important issue. In fact, your very eternity hinges on it. So, uh, James goes on in verse 20. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Again, that kind of faith is no faith really at, at all. Now, to bolster up his point, he gives us two un believable examples to prove his point because he's thinking like a lawyer now. He's got to persuade people. The human tendency is to work for our salvation so we can take pride in it and boast all the rest. And James is trying to talk us out of it. So he's throwing everything he can into proving this point. And he throws upon us two grand illustrations from the Bible, one concerning Abraham One concerning Rahab, never have there been two different people. One's a patriarch and the other is a prostitute. Here we go. We'll start with the patriarch. It's in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So let me give you a background. Abraham and Sarah were old. They wanted a child desperately. They passed childbearing years. They cry out to God. He says, Abraham, come outside. Leave your tent. Look up, says God. See the stars. Count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. And then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Huge. Abraham was given right standing with God. How? By believing in what God said. God said, I promise you descendants. I will provide descendants for you don't look at your body nor at your wife's i know biologically we're talking about an impossibility but i'm telling you i will provide this for you then abraham believed now this is before the law of moses was even instituted wasn't it we didn't even have any aspect of it yet god credited to abraham righteousness based on his faith in fact the word reckoned then abraham believed in the lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness that's an accounting term it's as if god is saying abraham i'm checking out your ledger you got assets on credits on one side debits on the other you got almost no cre- you got no credits with me and you your the debit side is full to capacity Well, Abraham, based on your faith in me, I'm going to take my credits, my righteousness, and I'm going to put it on your side of the ledger. I'm going to credit you with my credits. You have right standing with me. What did Abraham do? He didn't lift a finger. He lifted up his eyes and believed God. 30 years later, 
Abraham receives the most unusual commandment maybe ever given by God. Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac was his name. Go to Mount Moriah. That's in Jerusalem. You can stand there today. Go to Mount Moriah and offer up your son, Isaac, Yitzchak, we call him, in sacrifice to me. And Abraham is willing to do it. What? An act of devotion, trust, and obedience. And yet it's not on that basis that Abraham is considered righteous. You would think if ever you could manifest a work, a deed, showing your devotion to God for which you're considered righteous, that would be it. You're willing to offer your own child. No. God credited Abraham with righteousness, not on that basis, but back 30 years earlier in Genesis 15, God credited righteousness to Abraham based on his, not his works, his faith. Now, works that proved his faith followed 30 years later when he said, yes, O God, I trust you enough even to offer my own son. So that's the first illustration of justification by faith alone that uh, James offers. But there's a second one because he can anticipate some are saying, yeah, that's unusual. That's Abraham. He's the Jewish guy. He's a patriarch. You know, that doesn't apply to others. Oh, yeah. So now the second example, you can take a look at this, verse 25, is Rahab. Well, she's not a patriarch. She's not a male. She's not even a Jew. She's a Canaanite. She's a prostitute. Look, verse 25. And in the same way, that's an important phrase, what we just read about Abraham, and in the same way, that means it applies to Rahab. Look, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Was she justified by works or was she justified by faith? Works being proof of it. Well, um, the latter. She was justified by faith and works proved it. What works? Look, Moses' time has come to an end. What a great leader. But it was time to pass the baton. That's our situation literally today, isn't it, here at our church? A great man who has led us faithfully for over half a century. It's time to pass the baton. We recognize it. We accept it. Is it easy? No. I don't think it's easy for him. It's not easy for us. You think it was easy for people when Moses passed the baton? It's God's way. The minister comes and goes, the ministry continues. Why? Because the head of the church, Jesus, he's the rock. Nobody else is. You see what I mean? So the work goes on. They had to adjust just like we're going to have to adjust, and we will, by God's grace. By the way, if I could just as a sidelight tell you, as a staff member, and, but, but more importantly, as a member of the church, it's wonderful to see how the church has navigated these potentially turbulent waters. Some churches really split over things like this. But I can tell you, the personnel team, the, we had a succession team. I don't know if you know this. 18 people have been meeting for, we met for close to six months with the pastor. Never a meeting apart from him. Never. I know this. I was on that team. We met. We had a great time. It was headed up by that lady right back there, Pam Henderson. She was great. She got us great food. <laughs> Isn't that bad, Pam? I remember that more than anything. 
But Pam, you can say that, Pam, I don't remember at any time an unkind, contentious, angry word being shared there. It was very prayerful, very respectful the whole time. We did not have authority to do anything but think, cogitate in a guided way. How do, we, how do you make this transition look? That's all. We operated under the authority of the personnel team, wonderful, wonderful, godly people, quite a diverse group, as was our succession team group. And so this has been going on for some time. And uh, you need to know the personnel team, the succession team, trustees of the church, um, the executive staff. I don't know who else I can mention to you. How about this? The pastor. All on the same sheet. We're all together. That's why, as he, I'm sure, wonderfully shared today, um, we have a future. And our best days may be ahead. Why? Because I think we honored God in the process. People were very prayerful about all this. And we got to a point, there are no church splits. There's nothing. Where's our pastor going? Nowhere. He's, pa- he's going to be here. Why? What do you mean, why? It's a family here. You don't put people out to pasture. What a beautiful title from senior pastor to founding pastor. Can I tell you how beautiful that is? There's only one person now or ever who could bear that title. One day, Brother John's replacement, whoever that is, we don't know, will retire. And that person can bear the title pastor emeritus, but never founding pastor. There could be many pastor emeritus if the Lord tarries, but only one founding pastor. That's wonderful. So our founding pastor is not retiring. He's retooling for the next phase of ministry here. What is that? Well, that's between him and the Lord. It has to emerge so you can pray for him. This is new, new ground, isn't it? He'll be preaching here, as I, I think as you found out, in the 930 service, just as he always, uh, for as long as he wants and until uh, his replacement comes, comes on board. When will that be? Ask God. We don't know. The church has no mechanism yet to start that search. I think as you know this, it will. The wonderful teams of which you can be a part, personnel team, team on teams, they'll make a decision about just the mechanics of it all. How do you, how do you start a search team? Who's on it and so on and so forth. And then who will be the next pastor? We don't have any idea. But here's what's so exciting to me. He's already in the world, right? Otherwise, he's like too young. He's in there. He's out there somewhere. He has no idea he's coming here. So we can pray, oh, God, would you prepare him for us? And would you prepare us for him? And here's the beautiful thing. We're not doing this tomorrow. Are you kidding? This whole process takes some time. What's the rush? We're not going anywhere. And Brother Chuck will serve as the, you heard about all this, right? Did you pay attention? (laughs) As the senior interim pastor. Why not? He's the most logical choice. Are you kidding? He and Brother John have worked together for a thousand years. (laughs) They know and trust each other. And we as staff respect our executive pastor. And Brother Freeman, whom we love, uh, will be a little more the voice and face of the church. Are you kidding me? I mean, the whole thing, the way God brought Freeman back, but not after years in which he, you know, he was our student minister. Now, are you kidding me? He's, he, he got so much church experience and this and that. Will Freeman be the next pastor of the church? We don't know anything. You know what we know? As of this day, we're in good shape, and the baton is being passed by our, our Moses, by our pastor, to whoever his replacement might be. 
and you heard his words and we will honor the process. We will support Brother Chuck and whoever is next just as we have so honored our pastor for 53 years and in the meantime, our pastor's right here. What's he going to worship with his wife and some other church on Sunday? This is his church. He belongs here. He's stepping away from the leadership role into what role? A new role. We'll see what that is. He'll see what that is. Anyway, all that to say, Moses is his time has finished. He passes the baton to Joshua. God says, Joshua, take these people across the Jordan River and uh, take the land. Go into conquest. I give the land to you. So that's kind of what's happening. But Joshua, kind of smart, he learned from Moses, sends a couple spies across first to kind of go on a reconnaissance mission. Well, they go to Rahab's place. She was a prostitute and also an innkeeper. They stay in her inn. Well, the word gets out that these Israelite Israelite spies are there. It's Jericho. That's where they are. They're in Jericho. Well, the mayor, I'm making up that term, but the kind of governor, governing official of Jericho finds out these Israelite spies are here. We've got to get them. We've got to kill them because we heard what they did to folks on the other side of the Jordan River. We've got to get them before they get us, that kind of deal. But Rahab protects them. Because of what Rahab did, putting her own life on the line for them, they survive. Why did she do it? Makes no sense. Here's a Canaanite woman. She's not an Israelite. She did nothing. Why would she do this? Well, I'd like to share with you um, her own words. They're recorded for us down to this very day in Joshua. Listen, Rahab's words. I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og. Whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Listen. For the Lord, Rahab's words, Canaanite woman, listen to what she said. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. A woman, worshiper of Canaanite false deities, came to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how do I know she came to faith? Am I guessing? Well, I'll just share with you. Her name is recorded in Hebrews Chapter 11, listen, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Why did she do that? Why did she put her life on the line? She first put her faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true God, the God of the Bible. And righteousness was reckoned to her account. And the proof of her faith in him is that she was willing to do this marvelously sacrificial good work, risking her own life in order to save these Israelite spies. And so James is saying he couldn't have come up with two more contrasting people. One's a male, a Jew, a patriarch. The other is a female, a Gentile, a prostitute. What do they have in common? I'll tell you what. They came to have right standing with an otherwise unapproachably holy God the same way by faith. And the proof of it was new lives, changed lives. The evidence of it was works. Abraham, 
and Rahab have become brother and sister in Messiah Jesus. And we'll see him one day if we have put our faith, each of us privately, personally, in the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And Paul finishes this chapter, verse, excuse me, James does, verse 26, just as the body without the spirit is dead, that's not a reference to the Holy Spirit, that's the spirit, the, 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 the spirit of life. Yeah, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so too faith without works is dead. Paul, I mean, James is still hammering home this point, trying to show us what the truth is. A teenager, physically handicapped teenager, was at a train station he had to get from point A to point B. He was on crutches. He had his stuff, luggage, packages, really rough. It was very crowded. A man in haste to get on the train, bumps into this afflicted teenager, knocks him down. Packages, crutches, everything go flying. The man takes off. And he even had the gall to blame it on the disabled teenager. What'd you do that for? He said to him, you know, what'd you get in my way for? Really bad. Someone is watching all of this. And he goes over to the teenager, still sprawled out on the platform of the train station. He picked up the boy's things and helped him to get up. And then he put some money in his hand. And he said, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I hope this little gift can make up for it in some small way. And the boy was overwhelmed because no such kindness had been shown to him before. He thanked the man. And then he looked the man in the eye and he said, are you Jesus? And the man said, no, but I'm one of his followers. <clears throat> People need to see Jesus in us. Why can't they? Is there evidence of him in our lives? If not, why not? Could it be he's only in our head, not in our heart? Well, that faith doesn't save. It's the kind of faith that people see. When we go to Israel on our service trips, we don't call them missions trips because missions is not a good word in the Middle East. On our service trips, we... Uh, base what we do on a passage in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see, see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The good works don't save. The good works are evidence that we are saved. Do you see those works in your life? More importantly, do others If not, why not? I want to see Abraham and Rahab. I want to see them together, and I want to be together with them. And I know I can only get there on the same basis they did, the Jew, the Gentile, the male, the woman. What's the difference? Same way. You can only be saved by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And the evidence of true salvation is a changed life. Not overnight, I didn't say that. Progressively, we ought to see change. Do you? If so, shalom, go in peace. You are right with God. Not because of any good thing in you, (laughs) but because you have accepted the only perfect one as your Savior. If you do not see that evidence, change in your life, you come here, you participate, you're, you're a pretty good person. 
but you don't see evidence of new direction, new, new inclinations. I would love to meet with you and we can talk about it. Let's diagnose it. Let's see what it is. Let's resolve the issue. I'm looking forward to seeing Abraham. I'm looking forward to seeing Rahab. Here's the big deal. I am really looking forward to seeing Jesus. Is it bad of me to say I wish it was today? It's kind of bad because we have lots to do. <laughs> and we can't rush it. But oh my goodness. We're talking about him now. What's it like to talk with him then? Do you have that kind of assurance? You can have it. As with Abraham, as with Rahab, so too it can be with you. I hope it is. Lord Jesus, we're talking about you. And now this is quite amazing. Now we're talking to you. Overwhelming. How accessible and available you are. How dare we come before you this way? Well, we come through the cross. That's how. Upon which you, Lord Jesus, were impaled, suffered, died. But then you rose up from it. That's why we're talking to you. Because you're a living Savior. You're a mediator. You mediate the relationship between us and your Father. And that's why we can come boldly before you. You made the way. In fact, you said, I am the way. Another definite article. I pray, O oh God, that this would not be lost on any of us here. But if there be someone who has not yet put their whole weight on you as Savior, substitute for sin. Oh, God in heaven, I pray that one would do it even today as we sit here by saying, Lord Jesus, for that's who you are. Come into my life. Forgive my sin. Change me from the inside out and let it show. I pray, oh, God, that would be the heartfelt prayer if not earlier than today, then today, so that not one person would leave this place uncertain about where they stand with you. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you, folks. Don't forget the baby bottles, and we look forward to seeing you next time.